This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Melancholy, Nessa, Emperor Coffee, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist Block, Roy Cohn, Quamperon, Toscanini, Dacron. Dac what? What is Dacron? Hello again, and welcome to episode 38 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's Rock'em Sock'em action pack hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Dacron. With what, Katie? Dacron. D-A-C-R-O-N. Dacron. So Dacron is, what, a place, a band? Um, a delicious a- comestible that we <laughs> sprinkle across our uh, midnight snacks. A killer disease? A killer disease. It could be all of those things, but most reliably, none of those things, because it turns out it's a plastic-based fabric. Well, Katie, I'm so excited about this episode, I, I can, can barely tell. contain myself. <laughs> so, what is that kind of that grimace, that uh, <laughs> rictus grin on your face, uh, the kind of dead glaze in the eyes? It's mm. such a come-hither look. I found myself this morning, Katie, going through my wardrobe to see if I could find anything which had Dacron in it. Either my clothes are entirely breathable and of natural origin, or Dacron doesn't make a big song and dance about being in clothes these days. Probably doesn't. Um, We have done the lightest, uh, most delicate uh, featherweight amount of research on this because we knew we were bringing in somebody who could help us fill in the blanks a little bit better. Yeah, Katie, and we are delighted to welcome back for a third time, which I believe is a record, Dr. Cara Robway, who is the chair of the British Association for American Studies, and she is also the deputy head of the Eccles Centre for American Studies. Cara, you were our guest for both The King and I and South Pacific. Is there any way with Dacron that we can do some singing or not? I mean, we could probably have found a jingle if we'd really worked hard. You know, I think this is the era of the of the quality uh, advertising jingle. Uh, but sadly, I've not come prepared. Well, I have come prepared, both Ooh. of you. Um, I don't have a jingle or a song about Dacron, but I do have a verse prepared of something to do with nylon, Ooh. which preceded Dacron in the uh, man-made textile sweepstakes by about a decade. <laughs> and there was a fat swallow. George Marion Jr. song on the topic of the nylon stocking shortage, which we'll get into. And the name of the song was When the Nylons Bloom Again. And uh, (laughs) a a key refrain is, I'll be happy when the nylons bloom again. Cotton is monotonous to men. Only way to keep affection fresh, get some mesh for your flesh. That is really good. Really good. <laughs> so fantastic. So um, I guess we need to ask, first things first, what the hell is Dacron? So Dacron is basically a better, fancier polyester. That's what it is. It's a brand name. Um, and for, for a British audience who may not have heard of it, it was terrilene in the UK. So in, in 1939, some British um, scientists invented, I'm going to give it a go, Polyethylene terephthalate. Polyethylene terephthalate. See, I was going to have a pop at that, and I've tried reading it. 
Kara and I decided not to because it's it two wise. impossible words to pronounce. Yep, so it was wise. Say, say it again and I'm going to... I'll gonna... try. Okay, okay. Polyethylene, that bit's all right. Polyethylene. Polyethylene. Terry... Terifathalate. 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 There you go. Good. Terifathalate. Poly. So, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I love it. So that's a particular type of polyester. Um, and, and what's we, the difference between that and uh, Dacron and regular polyester? Do we so know? It's, it's really about its properties. So okay. all of all polyester fabrics have a lot in common. So they are they're really durable. That's obviously one of the things. They, they last a long time. Um, but they, they're also very easy to wash. And this, we'll know this from having used polyester in our, in our lives. So they're easy to wash and dry and dye. And that's true of, of Dacron as well as regular polyesters. But despite its sort of many strengths, normal polyester does still absorb water. So it's not resistant to like mildew and staining. But if it's clothing, generally you can kind of, you know, you spot treat something, you can wash it. But one of the things that Dacron was really successful in using, and this is where you still find it a lot, is in furnishing fabrics because it's quite hard to wash a couch. So, yeah, sofas, like padded bedheads, those sorts of things. That's where this kind of fabric was very successful. But it was also used in, in clothing, particularly when blended with other fibres. So cotton and Dacron, you know, wool and Dacron to make suits. And so obviously things don't crease. That's always a, a big popular reason why you would combine the fibres. Ah, Katie, so I'm reading polyethylene terifathalate. Nice. But I'm hearing miracle fibre. <laughs> oh, and I'm smelling it too, because if there's this miracle fibre that you can't actually wash, <laughs> uh, it starts to become uh, incrementally less miraculous as the sweat glands do their thing. I am very interested, Cara, in this whole idea of plastics being the material of the future because nylon uh, was invented, what, like in the 40s or something? So it's first released nylon stockings, what we think of as nylons. Yeah. Um, they first come to the market in 39. That's okay. when they're first released. So it Obviously, the war is starting in Europe, but it's not happening yet in America. And it was a very popular consumer product. Um, Previously, women's hosiery had been made historically from silk, which, as you can imagine, was very expensive and you can't really get it that thin. Um, And then there'd been other sort of artificial or kind of man-made fibers like rayon. Um, But nylon was incredibly successful because it was uh, was cheap, it was really durable, and it had stretch, and it didn't run like previous stockings had. But the problem was that then the war starts, and DuPont, which is obviously the company that manufactured uh, nylon and also Dacron, um, they had to use all of this nylon for the war effort. So it made parachutes, it made ropes, it made all these kinds of things. You know, you suddenly couldn't get this wonder product that had made women's lives better. You couldn't get. So uh, nylons had well a high price on the black market. You know, women are uh, having to dye their legs gravy or, you know, sort of dyed lotions and drawing, you know, the, the seam mark up the back of the legs with That's the eyeliner. That's a great look. People should still do that. I, <laughs> I, just, I, I just really worry about, about so dogs. So tasty. I really, I'm, my concern is what happens when you like <laughs> ran into a dog in a park. Um, so, so by the time you then get to the, to the end of the war um, and production goes back to, to consumer production, there's this real incredible pent-up demand. And so in the immediate post-war years in the US, you have a period that gets referred to as the nylon riots because basically women are so desperate to get their hands on this you know really miracle product um, that you have these huge queues forming where people hear that there's stock available um, and the the most famous example is um, in a neighborhood in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania in 1946 you had 40,000 women 
40,000 women showed up to try and buy 13,000 pairs of stockings. Oh, yeah. There's there's going to be some eyes scratched out with some fingernails. <laughs> it's there. just it's just crazy. And so that that, you know, it really gives you a sense. I think it's a really good way of thinking about actually a lot of the consumer culture kind of of this period, which it really is all about kind of pent up desire. And also there was this idea, Cara, that being a consumer was actually a patriotic activity after the war. Economic recovery was essential. But I love the idea that just being a big old grabby, self-indulgent shopaholic (laughs) was like something to do for Uncle Sam. Well, the, the fascinating thing is when you think about it, that you know, one of the things that happens at the end of World War Two is that America is essentially the only Western power that still has a functioning economy. You know, Europe is in ruins. Um, you know, they've been completely economically bankrupt. But the American economy, the amazing sort of way that American capitalism had basically won the war. This is one of the most fascinating things of this period. So during the course of the sort of four years of the conflict, American income manufacturers had basically doubled. Like that, there was so much going on and so, you know that the that the economy emerged kind of ready to go and that's the thing that's that's really interesting that you know it was really primed but then also i think when you think about sort of patriotism you then also think about the fact that as the sort of cold war is starting the way america is going to kind of fix a democratic and american way of life around the world is basically through encouraging consumption. So you have like the Marshall Plan, which is the the this big sort of diplomatic redistribution of money, particularly to Western Europe. They, they try to do it in Eastern Europe, but then obviously the Soviets are like, no, you can't be taking the money from the evil uh, capitalists. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, particularly in countries like France and Britain, the Marshall Plan is incredibly successful at restoring, you know, these, these, um, these economies. And so consumption really does become linked, not just in US minds, but around the world, you know, with buying, with consuming, but, but it's also it's become this vision of the good life, because, you know, people mm. see what Americans have been able to achieve. You it's know, this choice. This choice, this massive choice, and also this in- incredible improvement in living standards. You know, suddenly people can buy their own homes. You know, you have this sort of growth of the suburbs, you know, Levitt towns and, and other developments. You know, and people can, you know, they can fill their, their homes with these mod cons, which, you know, just people in other parts of the world just couldn't even dream of. I always remember um, Bill Bryson, the travel writer, who obviously grew up in America in this period and, and comes to the UK, I think probably in the 70s. One of his books, he talks about you know meeting his wife's family. And they, you know, he, he just cannot believe as a child of this sort of, you know, period of abundance in America, just how like lacking their lives are. You know, they've only recently got a fridge. Cara, I had exactly the same experience. I moved over to the UK in 1984, so that would have mm. been 10 years after Bill Bryson. And I had the same experience where people did not automatically have washers, separate washers and dryers in their homes. They went to laundrettes. Um, you had to put 50p in to either make a phone work, electric electrical meter, a, a gas meter, Um the fact that ice was advertised, sometimes air conditioning was advertised, you know, outside of cinema. And I really felt like it was very make do and mend. Uh, you know, we were still in that post-war, uh, let's uh, maybe take a sip out of orange squash or some other bomb shelter food. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I totally sympathize with, with Bill Bryson. There wasn't that sense of abundance. Yeah. And so that's why this this consumer culture is so you know, understood as being being American and being part of the sort of the American way, and also the economy really, you know, did have twenty five years sort of from the end of the war, with a few kind of small dips, but there was no reason to think that this American model 
was going to fail. So basically, until you get into the 70s and the, and the oil crisis, you know, you just have year upon year of growth. Inflation stays low. Unemployment yeah, stays it's just low. Uh, it's utter abundance. So I want to uh, zero back in on Dacron. Um, we talked a little bit about the attributes, the fact that it repelled water and mildew um, and it didn't wrinkle. Why is industrial science so obsessed with things that don't wrinkle? Uh, because it just seems weird to make a fabric that also doesn't breathe. Well, I, I think I think the thing you have to think about is about ironing. Now, this is obviously why everyone comes to a fun podcast is to think about ironing. But, <laughs> but if, you, if you think about it, you know, uh, technological changes come, changes in consumer goods. You'd had things we were just saying that we didn't have in the UK even some decades later. But, you know, things like washing machines, tumble dryers, you know, those elements of laundry, which used to be incredibly labor intensive. You know, you think about scrubbing clothes on a, on a board, oh, you know, all yeah. of that has that has been solved. Ironing has not been solved. You still have to, even though you've used your lovely washing machine, you mm. know, you're still going to have to iron that, you know, cotton dress. You not know, that, me, that Cara. <laughs> I'm not an ironer, Tom. Are you an ironer? I iron maybe once a year. I iron if I have a pussycat bow on a blouse that I want to be like crisp and perky, I will iron that. But everything else just responds to my body heat. But you think about <laughs> but you think about kind of American fashions and culture in the 1940s. It's changes through the through this period we're talking about but it's a very formal culture you know people go you know men go to work wearing mm. suits ties hats you know women are still wearing gloves standards were were kind of high and that's one of the things where this you know these these revolutions in kind of fabrics things have become more informal it's sort of part of this kind of leisured lifestyle which kind of Madison Avenue starts selling to Americans that you know that you can be having you know your barbecue in the back garden with your neighbors and you know it's just it's all all these sort of wonderful easy care dresses you've just thrown something on you know and you think of it in, in the sort of you know that kind of post-war like the the new look fashions the big skirts you know that takes there's a lot of fabric there to be doing with the ironing sure sure you know and then you as you sort of get through the decades you know, things start to slim down. Silhouettes slim down. You get, you know, you get into the sixties. You get sort of shift dresses in women's fashions. You know, it becomes it becomes a lot sort of easier. It becomes a lot more relaxed. And and I think that the, the polyester fibers is kind of part of that story. What would uh, a Dacron? If I were wearing a Dacron shirt today, what would that feel like on the skin? Is it sort of? Do you get about sort of prickly heat? Yeah, do you get a rash? Yeah. <laughs> so it, I, th- I think it probably really depends on how it's been used because initially the Dacron is all is is used as a blend. So, you know, it's blended into a wool suit to make the suit look fresher through the day. You know, you don't arrive from your commute at the office looking, you know, all kind of disheveled, you know, you're ready for the ready for your meeting with the boss. So you have all these you have all these blends. Um but as as we know, you know, as you sort of particularly you then get into the 70s and sort of you get towards this kind of pure polyester world pure polyester, pure polyester. <laughs> only um, the best only the best so so yeah i think i think it's a bit it is a bit sweaty um yeah i'm just not really sure i want i want to go there where else would we be experiencing dacron then if katie and i are in the perfect mid-1950s american household where is dacron as we look all around us so it would definitely be in your home furnishings that's an that's another one um but but plastics were everywhere i mean this is you know dacron's a particular a particular type but you know the sort of the house of the future was very plasticized mm. and part of it is i really love this expression i think you guys will enjoy it too 
damp cloth utopia. This idea oh, that I've everything... Dream, I've dreamed for so long of damp cloth utopia. <laughs> oh my God. It's like you've peered into my deepest fantasy. <laughs> but the, this idea that everything was just kind of with just a little quick wipe, everything would be clean. It wasn't, you know, you weren't having to kind of beat the carpets or sort of, you know, all this kind of, you think of the sort of the early... 20th century as being like coal dust and dirtiness. You know, the modern home is all central heating. It's and the fact that you know there's a little spill on the you know on your formica counter and just wipe it up. And I, it's all, sound good, I, this. I'm sort of like stopped being able to concentrate on what you're saying, Car, because. Uh, beating the carpet um, sort of overcame me after you said damp cloth utopia and now I'm just getting I'm getting very carried away um, getting a little sweaty and it's not the Dacron that I'm wearing um, yeah that's the thing that's so funny to me uh, like what we know now about the evils of plastics but the plastic crap that just appeared from the 50s onward that was associated with the future so uh, a, a list of anything from silly putty hula hoops frisbees tupperware cling film um plastic pacamax um or even um i'm gonna like flash you guys i'm wearing this slut slip a la elizabeth taylor so see this thing, Elizabeth Taylor and Butterfield 8. So this is probably 100% some sort of nylon thing. This is a vintage slip that has got this pretend lace. And, of course, you never have to iron it. And all of these things, I guess it is damp cloth utopia. Oh, I need one <laughs> just to, to cool my forehead down. I'm feeling a little feverish at the idea of it. Um, it was just that idea, I guess, of if it was futuristic, that meant we were living in the future. Exactly. And the DuPont, the, so the, the chemical company that made uh, nylon and, and Dacron, their slogan was better things for better living through chemistry. And this idea that, you know, that you could solve any problem with science. So you, you have this really weird tension, which is often very sort of fertile ground for analysis in the 1950s between this kind of the future is great and it's going to save us. I'm going to get wall to wall polyester carpeting and I'm going to get, you know, a car with the biggest tail fins and it will look a bit like a spaceship. But at the same time, my kids are doing duck and cover drills at school and school um, districts are handing out dog tags for children so that we can recognize their scarred remains uh, after the, you know, the nuclear assault. Another way to think about it is that you have, you know, American foreign policy at this point was a lot about containing the Soviets. But at the same time, you also have what... Um, a historian called Elaine Tyler May calls domestic containment, this idea that you're going to keep people kind of quiet and happy in their domestic home, particularly women. Oh, there's a wonderful quote from um, Levitt, the, the house builder who makes these, these suburban developments. He says, no man who owns his own home can be a communist. He has too much to do. Too you know, much to do. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that, you know, instead of being communist, you're tending your lawn, you know. Mm. So so there's there's a lot of kind of really interesting tensions and, ma and the mass consumer culture kind of, goes right through this and and yes there was this idea that that you know that, that things that were plastic and and new they they showed this brave new world that everyone you know wanted to be in and also they were fun that's one of the other things that, you know because you could make all these different colors you know plastics hold dye really well you could make you know you could have a, a kitchen set in you know any one of 70 shades you know also a lot of this stuff was cheap you know and you and people were no longer didn't feel that they had to be buying you know you weren't investing in the table and chairs that you were going to have to have from now until the day you died you know you you could always upgrade to a better model you know katie i don't know about you but i need a little breather should we have some ads hello i'm alan cumming 
and I have a new podcast called Alan Cummings Shelves. You see, I have quite a few shelves in my house that are sort of a museum of my life. In each episode, I'm going to take an item off my shelves, tell you why it's there in the first place, then start to talk about my memories of it, and then I chat with a friend who's involved in those memories. I've spoken to Ian McKellen about a hemp bracelet that he bought me on a nudist beach we visited together, Cindy Lopper about a pair of white leather gloves I wore on Broadway, and you even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about my Spice Girls lunchbox, and that is not a euphemism. I have some really amazing guests coming on to chat, so I just hope you will join me. And all you have to do to do that is to search for Alan Cummings Shelves, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you soon. And of course, uh, this whole consumerist culture was satirized famously in The Graduate, the film of 1967 starring Dustin Hoffman, where he has recently graduated from university and he's taken aside at a bougie pool party by an older man who says, famously, I just want to say one word to you. Plastics. (laughs) Plastics. <laughs> and that is supposed to encapsulate all that is just soul deadening about the American middle class and everything that this young man played by Dustin Hoffman is is rebelling against. But um, I remember growing up, I was a little kid in the 70s, and the food that we ate and the plates that we ate it off of, it was all, it seemed to be plastic as far as I was concerned, which I didn't have any judgment about. I was a kid. I didn't care. You know, I just, whatever's put in front of me, I I eat. But it did seem like, uh, thinking about it now, anything that was new or made from a new technology was considered good. So I was um, gobbling down TV dinners or something called instant breakfast, which was powdered milk drinks that just tasted revolting. There was the Tang orange drink that the, supposedly the astronauts drank. There were, you know, like canned vegetables. Um, and it, the funny thing is now you think about, you know, the bougie types who shop at Whole Foods to get their, you know, lovingly hand-caressed uh, kale or whatever it is that they're doing, uh, ten- tenderly um, coaxed uh, spinach. And that is seen as like just the height of self-indulgent luxury. And I guess back in the 60s, 70s, that would have been seen as the work of peasants to be eating something that you grew in your backyard. Exactly. But it's interesting you were talking about the, the graduate and that kind of moment in the 60s. Because the 60s is very interesting as obviously a reflection on the decade that's gone before. And you know, one thing I think it's interesting to re- remember that all these young people of which, you know, the Dustin Hoffman's character in The Graduate is meant to represent, you know, they don't come to all this on their own. A lot of them are kind of carrying through the, the disillusionment of their parents. You know, they're seeing the fact that actually this sort of post-war fantasy hasn't played out for, you know, for everybody. But you also have this emerging environmental movement, um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which is the famous book that's all about pesticides um, in the US. And you do have people starting to think, well, actually, what's our relationship to the natural world, you know, in living in this damp cloth utopia and eating these you know, these heavily processed foods? You know, what, what is the, the relationship to, to the natural world? Admittedly, Whole Foods which you mentioned earlier, doesn't start until the late 70s. So it's quite a way before you get to that sort of organic sort of boom. Talking of the 70s, Katie, there is a magnificent image that we've stumbled across of that crumb possibly at its finest. Um, This is an advert for Lee Jeans. And there is a gentleman who is carrying a 
blue cowboy hat. But the striking thing, well, there's several striking things about this image, Katie. Um, the gentleman in question is clearly dressing to the left. Uh, the jeans are quite tight at the top. They're very loose around the ankle and a classic flared cut. But it is the bright yellow nature of this. Cara, how would you describe this? I mean, it's trousers. I'm, I'm going for canary yellow trouser suit. But I think is that is that a denim shirt underneath? He's got a denim shirt underneath, and it's hard to see from the resolution on this image, Katie. If he's got a, I'd hope there's a cravat. If he's got a cravat, a very hairy chest, or a kitten tucked. <laughs> I, I, probably colors. all three is what I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, he yeah. So it's a, a lovely like Western cut there. So he and he looks very pleased with himself. He's delighted, and I thought I don't blame him because this suit, Kyra, is is quite the thing. He's really chuffed because it was drip dry. You know, he he just he just you know chucked it in the washing machine, took it out, gave it a little you know kind of little flick flicked it out, hung it on the you know the clothes horse, and it was it was dry by the time he'd you know had a cup of coffee and also with that incredible colour is part of that that sort of polyester success story is the fact that you can create a whole range of colours you know um, man-made dyes are incredibly versatile and that the fabric will hold the dye so it will still be crazy canary yellow even after several trips around the washing machine. And isn't there, you just reminded me when we were talking about this, wasn't there, that was one of the sales pitches of Dacron when they invented it in the 50s that uh, somebody who was giving it a test drive Fell out of a canoe in his Dacron <laughs> outfit, and then... yes, it was a suit. He was wearing. Oh, he was okay. a, meant to be wearing a Dacron suit. Why was he wearing a suit in a canoe? Well, this <laughs> I, I think. I think there's many. <laughs> I think there's many problems to the story. Yes, that, that being one of them. But yes, the, the fact that you know he he got out, you know, and the suit was fine. You know, it wasn't. You imagine if you were wearing a, a pure wool suit and you fell in a river, it would be you know completely you know, baggy. It would be destroyed. So um, and you'd smell of like wet sheep. Um, <laughs> so this the, you know the color and durability was really where it's at. And I think by the time you get into the into the 70s as well, though, all through this period, more and more women enter the workforce. It's often very limited. And that's what a lot of the women's movement of the 60s is arguing for is the fact that women are being employed, but only in very sort of ghettoized um, industries. And you know, they're never able to achieve sort of senior levels. But people do have less time to do housework. And so being able to have something that holds its shape, doesn't need a lot of ironing, you know, will still like the press in the trousers is still there even after you've washed it. You know, that's that's attractive. And that's where a lot of this this comes from. It's interesting to me as well, because um, not only is the innovation uh, a time saver for women and men, men who don't have women to wait on them like butlers, but also the development of polyester as a textile for fashion leads to a more casual way of dressing like the man in the canary yellow uh, dressing to the left tight in the <laughs> undercarriage uh, ensemble, but also leads to kind of a more androgynous way of wearing suits. So women wearing um, kind of pants suits, they were called yeah. in America, or leisure suits, uh, which I guess this uh, cowboy fellow is wearing an example of. Um, so that is quite forward, it isn't is, it? It is. And I think that's definitely, you know, you see that around the same time as you see the women's movement kind of having an impact that, you know, it, it does, clothing does become more freeing for women. You don't have to be wearing, going back to our earlier discussion, you know, the nylons, you don't have to be wearing stockings and, you know, giant skirts with girdles and that sort of thing. You know, f uh, fashion does 
change and does get does get more sort of relaxed. But I also think it's a you know it's about women's entry into the workforce. And I think you know things like suits and stuff, which are actually traditionally have taken a lot of upkeep because you know you either have to have it um, steam cleaned or pressed. You know that's expensive. It's time consuming. If, you know if you're doing it at home. But yeah, the fact that you know both you know men and women can wear these these styles, which which still look reasonably professional even you know even after you know a day in the office or what have you is is very is very useful but then it is also interesting when you sort of spin it forward I'm getting a bit out of my kind of time period but I, I find it fascinating that when you then get into the 80s actually what a lot of what you have is um using these fabrics in this kind of you know, ready to wear high fashion kind of crossover when, yeah. when you get into the, the sort of like the bodycon fashions and it becomes much more about kind of showing your physique rather than yes. concealing it. Actually, of course, you know, like a jersey knit, you know, is quite unforgiving in showing kind of what's underneath and that that whole kind of gym body kind of culture that, you know, you, that that's a way of demonstrating kind of social standing is the fact that you have time to exercise. Exactly. And in fact, my go-to look in high school in the late 70s was a lycra spandex leotard worn with the peasant skirt, so kind of slutty on top, uh, rustic on the bottom, covering all the bases. It was kind of that Stevie Nicks look, mm. you know, because she always had that like a tight spandex leotard and then kind of like witchy, witchy layers, voluminous layers that she could twirl in. And um, that was my thing. Yeah, but but that's very much like dance and exercise. Kind yes, of, and kind I was of a young yeah. I was a young dancer, so uh, that was my look. I do remember my little teenage high school boyfriend's mother gave me the side eye a lot in that. I think Did she, she. I think she for thought, the top half, not the bottom half. Yeah, the, yeah, the top half, and I, which I didn't understand at the time because I was a good girl, but um, she was worried about that. But the um, yeah, you mentioned the the jersey that was a real um, Halston look. You know, Halston. Mm-hmm was the designer, the Studio 54 designer of the 70s. So he brought out all manner of like swishy-dishy wraparound dresses made out of um, jersey. And he had ultra suede and spandex. And then, of course, Calvin Klein, Oscar de la Renta. I mean, that was a thing. But but you also think of disco, you know, actually, of course, you know, polyester fabrics allow you to to do the kind of the the glitzy stuff that we tend to think of of this era, you know, the kind of things in, you know, Back in the day, you'd be sewing on, you know, sequins by hand. That's very, again, laborious and expensive. But, you know, when you can make these shiny, shiny fabrics, you know, that that everyone, you know, they're accessible. Everyone can have them. Everyone can have fun. Um, and that's definitely, you find that in the sort of 70s fashion vibe for sure. And, and that you wouldn't have been able to, to, to do that on the same scale using the kind of production techniques of like 50 years before. At what point does Dacron go from being this miracle fabric and the fabric that everyone wants to wear to the fabric that everyone wants to avoid because I remember and this is another use Katie for polyester football shirts were always made out of polyester and there was a point where these were quite a popular retro item to wear uh, in the early 90s and I speak with some um, experience of this but they were unbelievably uncomfortable any sort of exercise that you actually took in these shirts raised your skin's temperature to over a thousand degrees um and there was a bit of a pushback against it so at what point Cara, do people go from thinking that uh, the damp cloth utopia is uh, a wonderful thing and start thinking do you know what i want my skin to breathe well i, I think that i think probably the 70s I, i'd imagine is a bit of a sort of turning turning point but it, you know, it's been quite gradual. You know, you think the sort of, you know, hippies in the 60s were advocating for kind of natural fibres. Cheesecloth. Cheesecloth yeah. and linens and, you know, and, the you know, fabrics which, which can breathe and which didn't, you know, require you to dig oil out of the dinosaur layers, you know, to make. Um, but it, certainly in terms of kind of 
I guess moving into other spheres of fashion, it's it's been quite slow. I mean, you still, you know, we're still not at a point where plastic has been rejected from fashion. You know, you think of, of fast fashion now, you know, those things are only possible because polyester fibres are incredibly cheap. It's much cheaper to extract the oil from the dinosaur fossils, you know, than than to grow and water cotton, for example. And um, also, Cara, the ever-increasing popularity of sportswear as any time wear means polyester is really not going away no, anytime and, and, soon. And that's a good example. I mean, you know, going back, you're saying, Tom, to, you know, the you know, older examples of fabrics which were incredibly heavy and didn't breathe. You know, now obviously, you know, sportswear continues to constantly innovate. And, you know, the big companies that, that sell us the stuff they have, you know, R&D operations that are all about, you know, performance fabrics, you know, and making sure that, you know, as you exercise, you hardly even notice that you've sweated because it's all just sort of wicked away from your skin and yet it still feels dry. And kind of how is that possible? You know, and all this sort of, you know, there's definitely still a market <laughs> you just that. Re- you just reminded me of something. So I when I was a young teenager, I remember going shopping with my mom and buying, like, she got me like a package of underwear. And it had emblazoned across the uh, packaging that it had like some special uh, gusset that was, you know, wicking, like moisture wicking or whatever. And uh, it was all like modern fabric and probably made out of polyester. And uh, I I said, oh, you know, apparently this is like the gusset breathes. And (laughs) And my mom so wittily said, oh, just be sure you don't wear them inside out. Oh. <laughs> Which I love that idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess you can make all sorts of crazy claims for things and and make it sound good, but equally it can turn on you. I mean, really, polyester is truly never going away because it's pretty much non-biodegradable. Yeah, it is. But but it is recyclable. And that's one thing I think is interesting. So when I, you know, we were talking about nylon stockings and the, and the war effort, World War II. Um, women were encouraged to donate their nylons to be recycled to make fibers for, for the war effort. Oh, you like know. parachutes and yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. all of the in a pure form, all of these fibers are totally recyclable. So the um, Dacron is is exactly the same stuff as is in your food container. So you know when you, you're looking to recycle something, you flip it over and it says PET. That is the unpronounceable word that we were trying to pronounce earlier. <laughs> it's exactly the same stuff. It's the same fibers. So you know, and you think about the fact that now we all know that you can recycle your water bottles, and you know you chuck them in in your recycling bin. Theoretically, that's the same for clothes. Just the problem is, is you know the industries have not decided that it's worth it to try and recycle these incredibly cheap and mass-produced clothes. So, so there could be a Dacron Mountain somewhere. Well, there are. Is there? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know because all this stuff is as Katie says, it's it's not it's not biodegrading. It's it's not going away unless it's reused. You know, it's it's probably in landfill somewhere so, or or in a whale's belly exactly so you know there's there's definitely a, a you know a move i think in terms of of reduce reuse recycle where you know the, the clothing companies it's quite noticeable sort of high end sports brands have started offering kind of you know recycling options on their on their leggings or what have you you know so there is there is a recon- recognition that you can do it with this stuff and that consumers will start to demand it but if you're still producing kind of fast fashion garments at you know millions per second it's it's kind of an uphill struggle do you think katie that uh, billy joel would have been wearing dacron in his childhood i don't think so i i don't believe that billy joel would have had dacron in his wardrobe because i just sort of imagine him coming from a very traditional home where his mom was making sure that he had a crispy white shirt, mm. freshly ironed. Nice woolen jumper for those yeah. Long Island winters. Um, 
I don't know if it is coincidence, Katie, but Dacron comes at the end of a little run in our favourite song. Roy Cohn, Juan Perón, Toscanini, Dacron. I mean, Billy is a master rhymer. Had he not included Juan Perón, is he including Dacron? Do you know what I mean? Which came first, the Argentine dictator or the polyethylene Terry Fathalates. <laughs> I believe it was a necessity being the mother of songwriting in this case. I think he needed a rhyme and he reached into the, I think he just went, you know, Macron, you know, Smacron, <laughs> Vacron, Dacron. That's it. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Dr. Carl Robway, that I went into this episode with some trepidation. And thanks to your knowledge and your enthusiasm, I have left it quite uplifted. Am I you, Katie? Yeah, I've, I'm uplifted, I'm, especially because there's no more glaze, no more dead fish eye coming out of you. Because <laughs> there was no pep in your step to begin with, Tom. But um, we are totally popped up now, thanks to Better you. Better living through chemistry. There we go. <laughs> Better living through chemistry. <laughs> Wipe me down with a damp cloth, guys. <laughs> just got a nagging thought, Katie, and we had a, a nagger after we did our Rockefeller when we were wondering if we had got the right Rockefeller. I'm sure oh. we did. My only question here after Dacron was, is it Dacron or is it Dacron? Oh, no. That's... How does Billy sing it in the song? Juan Perón, Tuscanini, Dacron. Oh, Dacron. Well, uh, Dacron will go with that, yeah? Yeah, go with that, of course. I mean, here's the thing. I am not really 110% convinced that Dacron has enough cultural cachet as, say, mm, a Marilyn Monroe or Joe DiMaggio. I mean, I suppose you know, Cara definitely made a good case and song and dance for it being part of the fabric, if you will, of American ingenuity and cultural consumption and, you know, uh, a demonstration of the American dream. But aside from it tripping off the tongue, do you think there's a real reason why Billy put it in there? Well, Katie, um, I don't want to get either of us too excited at this point in an episode, but we have recently received an email from a certain person, or should I say a certain person's representative. Um, and all I can say, because nothing is set in stone, all right. nothing is nailed down, nothing is inked in, but we may soon find the answer to your question. I want to tell you that the hairs on the back of my neck are getting firm, as are my nipples. So there's a lot of firmness here, and I might need a damp cloth. What is it called? A damp uh, cloth, so a damp, the, damp cloth interlude? That's something quite a, different. A, a gentle damp, damp cloth utopia. Oh, okay. Oh, I was already in that. I was already in that. This is a whole different situation. This is an interlude involving dampness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And a cloth may or may not be involved at some stage. But I'm very excited to hear that. So we are talking about Sir William Lord Lord of the Lord of the Pop Dance <laughs> Joel we are indeed Katie and um, <laughs> the nice thing about the damp cloth utopia was obviously we talked previously on our polio episode about how monkey death ship is the punk band that you and I put together yes damp cloth utopia feels like an early album maybe our second or third album that we release as a duo? I think this is more, we've gone prog. Yeah. 
I think that's what's happened here. Spectacular album cover. Oh, it's very it's melt it's very Salvador Dali. There's yeah. like melting clocks and things. Our faces are not present on the album cover. Well, our faces are like uh, they're decomposed somehow, and and it, they can't decompose because our faces have been rendered in polyethylene terephthalate. Did I get that right? <laughs> um, all I can tell you is that my face is moisture resistant and also mildew resistant. <laughs> And uh, it's best if you never wash it. <laughs> Tremend- tremendous. <laughs> well, um, if you need something else to listen to in the interim between this episode coming out and possibly an episode featuring someone spectacular coming out, we would recommend a listen to Death of a Film Star. Death of a Film Star, every single episode looks at a different actor and gives you the inside tales, the scandals, the truth about who they really are. There are episodes about Marilyn Monroe, Rock Hudson, Errol Flynn, and a lot more. All people, Katie, who were around in the 1950s and may well have lived in a Dacron world. Um, if that sounds like your cup of tea, just search for Death of a Film Star to listen. And hey, if you want to get in touch, you can do so at Fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk and you might have something on your mind you want to share with us you might have a notion about an upcoming topic or perhaps a thought about the composer of the song we didn't start the fire who may be making an appearance Uh, or perhaps you'd like to submit yourself or someone you know and love as an expert we're also on Instagram and Twitter at spread that fire Katie Puckrick next episode of the lyric-based theme of this podcast is about... Tom Fordyce, it's about Jian Bian Fu. Jian Bian Fu. Jian Bian Fu, not a plastic. And the actual entire lyric is Jian Bian Fu falls. Casey, you've done well to say that. Let's see what happens. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.